You are listening to the Dylan Taunts Podcast. Hey everyone, this is Jim Salvucci, and welcome to the latest edition of Million Dollar Bash. Today we're going to be talking about the privilege of trotting the earth with Bob Dylan and finitude. This topic came to me because I was thinking about a recent claim that was made. I don't know if it's true or not. It could be highly speculative that this is Dylan's last tour, that next year he is going to stop performing on tour. Maybe that's not true. Maybe 10 years from now, we'll be talking about Dylan's latest performance. But then we just had the recent loss of Robbie Robertson and Sixto Rodriguez, and it's got me thinking, thinking about endings. Not in a morbid way, not at all, but thinking about the endings the way Bob Dylan does. You know, he thinks about endings and blowing in the wind, the ephemera of blowing in the wind and hard rain, the dissolution of his marriage and blood on the tracks, the apocalyptic endings of the gospel period, the endings of what is it, life, a relationship, both time out of mind, the endings of rough and rowdy ways, and what the hell is a shadow kingdom anyhow? So before Bob Dylan goes off to retirement at a beach at Malibu, uh, we want to think, as Court Carney put it in an email, about the biography of his songs, the biography of his works, after we've had every version. What does that mean? So I want to introduce our regular million-dollar bashers. We have Grayley Heron. Hey, Jim. Hey, everyone. Glad to be here. Court Carney. Hello, everyone. That was a private email, Jim, that I have no memory of. <laughs> Aaron Callahan. Hey, Jim. Hi, everyone. Glad to be here. Rock and Rob Virginio. Hey, Jim. Glad to see everyone. Thanks for having me. And Nina Goss. Hello. Thank you for having me. Nice to see everyone. All right. Let's get right down to this. So how do we think about Dylan and his work as a whole, his career? I mean, let's put this all in context. What is it to be a Dylan Tom? What is it to be a Dylanologist? And what is what is Dylan in this world today? Oh my God. <laughs> it's a small question. <laughs> well, I, I, I take it that kind of the premise of, of the question is that we're thinking about where it is where we are now as Dylanologists or in a Dylan world in anticipation of what will the landscape look like when we can't keep hitting refresh on the Bob Dylan website to see what new tour dates have been announced or what new uh, record or uh, bootleg series uh, has dropped or a new book. Um, I don't know. I, I, um, I wonder about that too. I mean, the work I think stands up on its own and will live not only long past Dylan's lifetime, but past the lifetime of everyone on this podcast and listening to this podcast. I mean, the work will stand that test of time, I have have no doubt, but it will be a transition, right? When, uh, when it becomes, when we start studying it the way we study uh, Beckett or Shakespeare, you know, as a thing that uh, evolves in the hands of interpreters and and critics and fans, uh, but the last note has been sung, the last word has been written. Uh, I'm, I'm curious to hear what others think about that because I'm not sure what I think about that. Well, 
Grayley brought up Beckett and Grayley and I both come from uh, our, we have experiences in Beckett studies and in Beckett studies, um, well, Samuel Beckett, um, he has his prose works, but then he also has his, his drama, his plays, and those are meant to be performed. They live as performances. They don't live as texts on the page. And one of the interesting things in Beckett's career is that he went somewhat grudgingly and then rather obsessively into directing his own plays. And so you have a kind of debate within Beckett studies about, uh, and within the world of theater practitioners, is this production of Beckett's Waiting for Godot because he directed it? The interpretation, because in performance of drama is when it is, is a form of interpretation of, 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 the, of the script, of the playtext. And what we have with Dylan, of course, with the never-ending tour especially, is just not a couple of per performances that were directed here and there that people want to uh, say, okay, this has Beckett's um, imprimatur. This is how it should be performed. This is what the play means because Beckett directed it this way. I mean, we have with, with Dylan just a flood, an absolute embarrassment of riches in terms of interpretations of the songs through his performances. So it's going to be, yeah, I don't know quite how that's going to play out because for every, this is the definitive interpretation of the song or this meaning of this particular song in ears in this particular performance by Bob Dylan, someone can turn around and pick another bootleg and say, nope, here's another interpretation of that song. And here's another way that it's done, but it's the author that's performing it. So it's kind of like this strange um, conflict within, um, you know, interpretive, in, in, in interpretive paradigm. So I think one of the wonderful things about the never-ending tour and it's in the flood of all of these different interpretations of the songs is it, I hope, will leave room open for great speculation, more interpretation, um, and a never-resting uh, kind of inquiry into what the songs mean. And kind of to speak to that, Rob, and I'm with Grayley, I, I don't quite know how I feel about this, but I read an interview that Dylan gave in 1991 with Paul Zolo. And the question was, but aren't there songs of your own that you know will always be around? And his answer was, who's going to sing them? My songs aren't really meant to be covered. No, not really. Can you think of, and he trails off, he says, well, they do get covered, but it's covered. <laughs> so they're not intentionally written to be covered, but okay, they do. And so 32 years ago, he's telling you that his songs are for him to perform and interpret. And I know that, you know, beyond him performing, they and they do get covered, but he's telling us there that they're his and his interpretations are maybe like the Beckett interpretations, the interpretations, and he gets to play with them. So I thought I found that interesting. I, th I think there's an emotional component here. <clears throat> and like I was telling you, Jim, biography of song, yes. I think that's important. Everyone, what y'all are all talking about is important too. But I've been struck by, when I was in my early 20s, I don't think I listened to something more than I listened to the band. I listened to the band constantly. It was a deep dive into so many different vectors that I still listen to. I don't listen to the band that much recently. I haven't in years. Robertson's death, we pulled those records out. But I was struck by Rick Danko, who I've always loved. <clears throat> and his voice 
I was listening to over the weekend and I was moved to tears as I often am with it makes no difference. And I'm thinking that will move me to tears forever. That emotion, that voice. And then I put on my other, one of their favorite recordings, the basement tapes, uh, one too many mornings, which starts with Richard Manuel and his voice is so beautiful. But then Bob comes in and it's so fucking great. Like just hearing those two men sing, and they're probably in their late 20s, for no one, is the most beautiful fucking thing on the planet. And I'm just moved so much by going back to those records and going back to Rick Danko, who's been dead now almost a quarter century, Richard Manuel longer. And it just strikes me that those are glimpses at something that will be with me when we confront the unconfrontable, which is <clears throat> what Bob has provided emotionally is deathless. And I think that when we get to that point, there's going to be every scholarly bit of me, an intellectual bit of me, but there's also that emotional bit of me that is um, deeply connected to this. And the other thing I was going to say is that this summer I've been listening for reasons known and unknown to a lot of um, late 70s and early 80s Grateful Dead. And that's another example where Jerry Garcia exists out of time. I never saw Jerry Garcia. I never saw Jerry Garcia in 1977. I never saw Jerry Garcia in 1981. Um, but he has the ability to move me in ways that very few things can. And that is forever. And that is uh, an, an infinity. Infinity goes up on the trial, right? That is, that is the measure of what this man will mean times whatever and i think that there's a lot to be said for that and i think there's a lot of beauty there that's not just sadness but there's also the all of it it's all tied together i think that's why it's a knot that is hard to um uh, uh really kind of look at directly nina do you have any thoughts i guess i have thoughts um i think there's a difference between Talking about Bob Dylan's art as a as deathless, its deathlessness is self sufficient, or its deathlessness depends on future generations of people feeling what Court and all of us feel and think, and that's something that interests and concerns me. I don't. What is it that? What can court possibly do to get someone half his age to cry over Rick Danko or Bob Dylan's voice? And what and what if we are the the we are the agents of Bob Dylan's deathlessness? And how how do you we you talk about deathless art, but what makes it deathless is not inherent in the art itself but in successive generations who are you know finding life in and making life through the art and what do you is that happening is that something we can count on is that something you we can engineer i, I don't really know you know it's the same people at the shows and at the I and at the you know 
I see the same demographic when I go to Dylan shows. I see the same demographic when I go to Tulsa. Um, and I worry about that. I think that's exactly uh, the other piece to that. You know, I think that's that's exactly right. I think it dovetails with our last conversation with Tulsa. I think it dovetails with all this stuff. When you're asking, how do I get someone half my age? I don't know how to speak to 12-year-olds, 15-year-olds. I don't know. <laughs> Shit, they're 25. No, I saw Jerry Garcia in 1979 and in 1984. Uh-huh. I, so, I, think, I think what yeah. I was just drilling at is that there's that line that's personal. That is that is a personal thing that will forever be tethered to. But then the, the larger question, of course, how, how do we expand and how do we open and how do we create? And I don't know if there is an answer. I, I have I have the similar cynicism. I don't want to put cynicism on you, but I have a similar kind of cynical take as to I'm not cynical, I'm sad. Right. Right. You no, can't that's force deathlessness. You can't force deathlessness yeah. onto a generation. You that's the last thing on earth you can do. The question might be, like, does, and I, I keep coming, I apologize for keep coming back to this, but does the proliferation of interpretations of the songs that Dylan has given us, is that going to be something that will, that my concern is, will that foreclose individual interpretations of the music, reimaginings of the music? Because there are some covers. I mean, I love the the quote that, that, um, that that Aaron read um, because he it's a very equivocal statement. He's like, no, they're not meant to be covered, uh, but they are. And there are some wonderful, wonderful covers and wonderful, wonderful interpretations of 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 them. And uh, uh, so I, I'm just wondering if this embarrassment of riches of the different interpretations of these songs will that foreclose future interpretations, future. Uh, engagement with the material or will is it a kind of opening up like here's this is how it used to go but now we play it like this and it's an, a kind of encouragement to the audience to like re reimagine it because when i think about my students when i'm trying to teach them dylan we begin with the music that they're interested in and uh their engagement with it and how music engages can engage us um but that's that's my kind of concern about the, the the fact that we've got this performer who's not it's not a string of albums it's a string of interpretations of those blueprints on the albums and will that foreclose or open up and i don't know the answer i can guarantee you that any opening for younger people will not be the the, the canonical uh story that i think some people would wish it to be i don't think they're connected to that at all i don't think that's even a bad or good thing it just is and they're going to come at it from a direction very very different than any of us absolutely or any of us that came before us yeah yeah the, i've in teaching dylan i know that the they have absolutely no idea and that's a wonderful thing sometimes in the classroom the insight that the students give into their engagement with the music is very profound because they don't have that mythical storyline that you know you slot these songs into these particular epic moments within the master artist's career well that raises some really interesting questions about legacy though i mean if we were talking about a painter and dylan is a painter but if we were talking about you know picasso right we don't say well you know young people don't get picasso anymore right 
You, they, they either like it or not, but it has nothing to do with generations. You know, we don't, we do that with much of literature, right? It has nothing to do with generations. People read Shakespeare because they like Shakespeare. It doesn't really matter their age or they don't read it because they hate it, whatever, but it doesn't matter their generation. So why does that matter with music or, or maybe it's just Dylan? What, what do you think about that? With Picasso, there's a great meme where someone said on Twitter or something, you mean to tell me this man lived and died in 1973? I thought this guy was from like the 1500s. <clears throat> this idea that we are so far removed from an understanding of like life. I think that could happen very quickly with someone. <laughs> well, you're making me think of the end of Dylan's Nobel lecture, right? When he's um, finally trying to distinguish between literature and song. Um, and he puts literature on the side of death <laughs> and song on the side of life. And our songs are alive. Uh, you know, that uh, I, I'm pretty sure he even uses the plural, our songs. I have to go back and look at that. But I, I feel like that's probably not an accident, unless I'm misremembering. <laughs> uh, because there's a sort of sense that it belongs not just to the person who may have written the song, but to the generation of songs that came before that helped create that song and the sense that that song lives on past any single uh, composer or, or singer's lifetime, that there is this endlessness to the process of song, which is not true of the human life of individuals who, who produce it. Um, and, and Dylan's always been aware of that, right? You know, he started out singing other people's songs, folk songs, and then he created his own, but he created them largely out of stuff that pre-existed, and, and he openly acknowledges that. And there's even on a micro level, the sort of sense um, that the song's never fixed. It's always evolving, uh, Rob's point there. But, but when you think of albums, Dylan's so great at opening and closing albums, right? Of introducing us into an experience and then often releasing us from that experience in a way that anticipates uh, a new twist uh, in the artistic journey that will come afterwards. And eventually there won't be an afterwards in that sense, but I suppose it's that endlessness of the process of song that Dylan invokes in his Nobel lecture that he's lived out through his art form for 60 plus years, uh, that gives me some hope that though the artist and the critics can't control the future reception of an artist, that this kind of living, changing, evolving art is going to find its own audience and find a way to speak to, to future generations long after Dylan can't speak for it, and after the people in this Zoom session can't speak for it either. So you're relieving us of the duty to curate and promote Dylan's legacy. Well, I do think there's a duty to it, actually. I mean, I, I, back to Nina's point, you know, that it's, does, it's not just about the quality of the work. There have been lots of artists who had great quality work who were ignored during their lifetimes and quickly forgotten afterwards. There are artists who were largely ignored in their lifetime and then have this unexpected resurgence, you know. And then there are great artists who are acknowledged as great, but then once they're not around producing new work anymore, it kind of peters out because those people like us who appreciate this don't do their jobs <laughs> to keep it alive. 
to help, you know, not to lecture to someone or try to indoctrinate someone, you must like this because this is great, but to just expose and share with others why we love it, why we think it's important, and keep the conversation going. I mean, after the death of an artist, not that I'm trying to be morbid, but this is true of any artist. This isn't just about Bob Dylan, uh, right? The legacy is never a guarantee. Uh, it is a thing that is fashioned by uh, listeners, fans, critics, uh, long after that person's gone. So I do feel a sense of responsibility, at least for us, this generation. And Nina, I think, is the one who first said this to me. I, 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 she's, other people have said it too, I'm sure. We're the last generation who will be privileged enough to have actually seen this man doing his job on stage, right? Seen him as a live uh, performer. And I do feel a sense of responsibility to, I don't know, bear witness to, to uh, what he accomplished and help try to communicate to the future generations who won't have that privilege why it matters. I'm, I'm glad I'm not the only person who quotes Nina, but Nina, you also said that we are the link between everything in that first generation and everything that comes after. And I'm encouraged because there are younger scholars, millennials, you know, like Laura Tenshirt and Elizabeth Cantillamessa and um, even Annie Burkhart, and then also younger Gen Z, like Rebecca Slayman, who are who came to Dylan organically. Um, and so kids are finding their way, we can say, and we promote that and encourage it. So I do feel like there are, there are ways that they're coming to Dylan in their own ways, whether it's through James Baldwin, like Rebecca did, or, you know, through a, a choir director giving her a tape as Laura. I mean, there's just, there are these wonderful stories of folks, you know, Dylan's work resonating emotionally or intellectually with people, um, younger people in their own way, much like he did with us in many ways. Um, and so I am encouraged by that. And I will, you know, talk about the elephant in the room that the Timothy Chalamet movie is going to bring lots of young people <laughs> to to Dylan. Um, and hopefully they will go beyond just Timothy Chalamet and maybe dig deeper. But, you know, it, it, it is going to open them up to a new generation of fans. I'm so happy you brought up that movie because now I don't have to. Thank you, Aaron. <laughs> no worries. Nina, did you have something to say? No, what if it doesn't? The pop culture cycle is so short. I mean, I, the movie will come. People talk about Chalamet for a week and a half, and then it'll be done. I don't. I, I I'm more interested in the people that Erin uh, is talking about. The the younger people who are discovering him through different, as you say, organic channels. And then I would say that our I can't. Uh, our responsibility is to provide them with really, you know, committed response material that they can that they can go to to enrich their um, their work and their experience. That that's what we can do. I want people to listen to Idiot Win, my Idiot Win. I don't want to think that two hundred years from now there's going to be some you know, AI, whatever, it, you know, fake idiot wind. I want our idiot winds. I want people to cry over that. Not, I'm not so, I really love the, the, 
I want to be the person who who feels this. Oh, I want the the efflorescence of Bob Dylan to go on, and then people will do their own thing with him, and and there'll be a million different voices singing and in and produced whatever creating from Bob. I don't want that. I don't care about that. I want everybody to listen to blood on the, the same blood on the tracks that Bob Dylan gave us and then go, you know, feel like you've been run over by a truck. That's what I want. But but I do. I, I'm on Rob's side and I, you know, give Rob all the credit in the world. Your ardor for, you know, N- new n- Bob Dylan grafted into new forms of culture and new voices. I, I I really cheer that on. I just I want people to listen to what I love. I want people to listen to Bob and love him. I mean that's the unique that's the unique thing that we've got for you know unlike unlike Shakespeare we've got yes his voice which I agree with Court you know, is, is devastatingly, uh, uh, beautiful and emotional at that uh, emotion producing, uh, this voice, we have it. Yeah. And we've got 1976 idiot wind with all the vitriol. We've got the, uh, the album version, we've got these different versions. So I think for me, there is with Dylan's body of work, a incredible, um as 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 Grayley put it, you start in on Dylan and then the next thing you know you're you're thinking about the band and you're thinking about um uh, little Richard and you're thinking about um the Harry Smith anthology and then you just you just go on and on and on from that um uh and then but we've got his we've got Dylan's voice. And so I, I, I agree with Nina in, in that regard that, um, I don't want Dylan to just be a, um, jumping off, uh, uh, pad for, um, something that's kind of tangential to that artistry that's embedded in that voice and the, his, his mode of performance. Um, uh, and yet, so what I would love to see though, is, is, is different modes of interpreting the, the, that those performances and i think i think that that um the art you know when prospero walks off the stage when he 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 throws his books away um that will uh offer a moment of critical investigation that's not tethered to he said this in this interview. He said this in this interview. He this performance is means this is 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 the performance. That's kind of um, where I'm kind of uh, hopeful in a way. Do we tend to have? It's less of an issue of Dylan, or what Dylan could be seen as in the future, and more of a distrust of the cultural apparatus that exists today. That I mean, go back to Grayley's point of the Nobel. He ends with what is he with uh, Homer, right? Like he kind of says, "This is the muse." Yeah. Right. The difference between Homer and Dylan, in terms of, 
I don't know if I want to go that direction. But I think that there's something there with the cultural apparatus that we have or the mechanisms that we have are so distrusted with AI coming on and everything else that I, I worry that some of the, the, the concern is mostly about how it's going to be preserved or or even being able to be seen rather than someone somewhere is going to see Dylan and they're going to hear the exact same things through new ears and have different experiences, of course, but they're going to be able to do that. But I'm much more fearful of like the immediate generation after us or the immediate generation beyond that, which is, are they going to have, what we, is, is there so much distortion I don't know. There's something else there. I think it goes back to Nina's point too about like, well, how do we set them up for this? How do we create a, a world that they can tap into? We, most generally speaking, not me, but we as a group. Um, I think it gets to these very existential questions of of culture and, and cultural protection and cultural transmission. Um, and I think that's where I get really scared. I, 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 don't, I don't worry that some 15-year-old somewhere is going to find blood on the tracks or some more likely 29-year-old going through a divorce is going to find blood on the tracks and say, this is, this is, my, this is my thing. But I am worried that, that we're, just, we're not going to have a way to kind of tap into this. And this makes me feel like a real traditionalist, but I feel that way lately. So it's my new era, my neo-traditionalism. I hate it. There's, if you if we accept that there's nothing we can do about this, there's nothing at all we can do about this except make a make widely and instantly available the uh, original material, and that's a service that the center can provide. If all this stuff is is accessible in its full authenticity universally i think that's the only thing that we can do is make it make this accessible and otherwise it's not a thing we can do about sensibility and uh, going forward and making sure that jim keeps an updated server for all of this correct for all, forever yes uh, thank god for substack I want to I want to go back to something Rob was talking about because it, it was anticipating where I wanted to go with this, which is, you know, so what untapped critical approaches, what unique perspectives, um, what what Dylan works have been neglected, right? And uh, that maybe we should be addressing now. I think Dylan and and um, gender and constructions of masculinity. It's a wide open field. Um, hasn't really been touched upon. Uh, I, I think that, um, just, you know, there's, there's a, um, in terms of, uh, intertextuality, uh, there's so much going on in Dylan songs, I think about language itself and how song has a particular way of embodying language uh affects us uh, uh so thinking about um intertextuality not in this way that not in a way that it, where you're just talking about allusions that dylan is making and that kind of like roots the work down and he's referencing this and referencing that and that 
roots the work down. Rather, the, the texts themselves kind of open up because of their intertextual uh, weave. So those are just off the top of my head, two kind of uh, uh, interesting avenues that, that I think uh, are, are, are kind of wide open to my mind. Yeah, I was just going to very quickly say your panel in, in Tulsa, Nina and, and Rob, I mean, that's the, that's the example of where there's brand new things exploding out of songs that have been discussed and talked about, but here are brand new ways that, that stick with you. And I think that's sort of key. Um, I think that's important, too. Uh, I think there's still more to be done on Dylan and race. Um, I mean, there's certainly there has been lots of conversation about Dylan's position, you know, that he rejected his voice of his generation, his relationship to the civil rights movement. Um, but uh, there's a lot more going on there uh, that hasn't been tapped. And it would be nice. Um, we're starting to get more women voices, I think, uh, on Dylan panels and writing about Dylan and in Dylan kind of uh, social media world. And that's an encouraging sign. And I hope that continues to grow. Uh, still almost exclusively white demographic. Um, and I don't know if that changes. I mean, in some ways, Dylan is hampered by his own demographics and our our worship of of him sounds like oh surprise surprise another you know idol worship of an old white guy's accomplishments. I think there's more to Dylan. I think his tentacles reach deep and in ways that I would hope would be interesting and would speak to not just future generations but 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 to groups beyond his own demographic. We're not seeing that happen a lot yet. Uh, I think it will will probably need to happen if Dylan studies is going to remain vibrant in a post Dylan world. Um, and, but I don't know, I don't think there's anything we can do to control that. It either speaks to people or it doesn't, but I would like to think that there's enough in Dylan that should spark more conversations and responses on that front than have happened so far. I agree with Grayley. And that there's nothing we can do, but we just, yeah, that I agree. I absolutely agree, really. I was just going to say that I think we've moved so far from like, what does Dylan think? What does Dylan mean? And I think that we've moved so far from that, that there's so many creative avenues open right now that people are going down. I think that's great. I do think uh, in, a, in a more traditional sense, I think in maybe another generation, we might have the first really great biography down, you know, once we have clear out the stuff and someone born today might be the one who writes that. But I think we could be great to have something like that. Um, but I think all these avenues of, of gender and race and, <clears throat> and kind of cultural construction, I think this is the rich, the richness that we're going to start seeing much more of. And I think Tulsa is an example of that too. I mean, half of those panels were really invested in that kind of discussion. Half were invested in not having that discussion, but you know, I want to put Aaron on the spot here. Do you do you have anything to say about Dylan and masculinity? Um, no, not right now. <laughs> but I, I do. Um, it, it's it's. I'm still developing my idea, but I do think that you know those are untapped, like the masculine constructions and or the constructions of masculinities through his songs. And I think we need to, you know, obviously, I'm working on something on that right now. 
with Anne-Marie Mai, but um, which is why I was glad that that it, that it was brought up. But um, I do think also that, you know, I don't know. I have nothing to say about that right now. But I was thinking, you guys know how I feel about Dylan in the 80s and reconsidering the wasteland that, that everyone thinks is, is the creative wasteland that the 80s are. But um, I think there's been a focus, too, on looking at representations of women in Dylan's song among a lot of folks that I've talked to, that seeing how um, he's performing masculinity will be interesting at the conference in Odense. And so I'm, I'm really, I'm, I'm fascinated with that too, just to see what other people have to say. That's all. Well, what about that? What, what neglected areas are there of Dylan? Um, you know, in terms of, you know, there's Dylan in the eighties, right. But you know, what, what art, not just his songs, not just his music. I mean, he's an artist in, in several realms. Um, Lord Tenchard's done a lot to redeem him or or promote him, maybe is the term, um, as a visual artist. But are there other aspects of Dylan that we've thus far more or less neglected, whether it be his songs or whatever? Well, I would definitely wouldn't say it's neglected in terms of him as a live performer, especially the Never Ending Tour. I mean, we all acknowledge that that is a central part of his identity as an artist and as a human being. And we appreciate it in the abstract, we appreciate and maybe have paid a whole lot of attention to certain standout performances. But one thing I'm learning along the way as I'm going through the Stillen in Cincinnati project is just so many of these obscure, um, you know, venues and performances that most people have never heard from can sometimes just have all these hidden gems in them. And I am getting a lot of pleasure out of digging into just the performances in one little city but the sense that these kinds of projects could be done in a hundred cities uh, or different kind of thematic uh, constructions, organizing principles for digging into that wealth of uh, bootleg material that's out there. Uh, you know, after long after I can't go see Bob Dylan in concert live any longer, I'll still have hundreds, thousands if I want, uh, of concerts I can listen to that I never attended and that I've still to this day never heard. And I'm sure there are those same kind of epiphanies awaiting me in the future or any other listener or scholar. Uh, so that's certainly uh, just, we've just uh, scratched the surface of that dimension of Dylan's work. So even after he decides to hang up his straight pants, he's going to continue on through all these many, many, many recordings. I mean, it is an unbelievable wealth and um, there's many audience and soundboard recordings that we can tap into as we've seen. I um, mean, they're still emerging. I'm, I'm sure he's going to resume his current tour again. I hope I'm looking forward to that. That promise of inexhaustibility seems essential to us. And that's something that I would want younger future people to get a sense of that something intrinsic to our our attachment to this artist really is this this sense that we have of in, inexhaustibility that's present even when he is not present and that sense that around the corner there'll be that one more version of whatever and 
I, that seems really essential to who he is, and that sets him apart from all other popular uh, artists, all other artists. Every, you know, the cliche of the, you know, the trunk in the attic with the manuscript of the lost, you know, sonnets of Shakespeare, That that's our real life as Godillan fans. There really are these trunks, and... and they're going to keep, they're going to be unopened trunks when all of us are gone. And that seems to be important to the character of us and our life in the Dylan. I think what's interesting with, with the last couple of minutes is that we're talking about someone whose legacy isn't, isn't completely defined. I mean, if, Paul McCartney was to exit the world. I think we would know how it would be to talk about Paul yes. McCartney. I don't think we would know. I mean, I think Dylan's still creating. He's still building. And I, I think the large pieces of it are there, but we don't know. We don't know what it's going to look like. The other thing I was going to say is that as an avenue uh, and something that I've been interested in working on is kind of Dylan and the view of history and Dylan and kind of historicizing uh, how, how we look at stuff and how he looks at things. And I think there's something very kind of fascinating and big there that um, I think is worth exploring. But I think that's interesting that, you know, not only do we not have control over what future people will listen and think about, but it's kind of hard to wrap up what Dylan means today. And I think that's what's so fascinating about it. And I think that's something that's going to be, that alone can be played with in terms of, well, you know, uh, who is he? I sometimes wonder if maybe in a way he's sort of shown us a direction. Um, his last release, and it hasn't really been regarded as an album, but it is an album, is Shadow Kingdom, not Rough and Rowdy Ways. And it is a, reinterpretation a radical reinterpretation in many cases of his own music covers if you will um you know and that sort of treatment of his own legacy right um you know he's digging back into his songbook it's not these are not necessarily the most prominent songs you know he's not doing mr tambourine man again um you know he's doing watching the river flow you know what's that about what's what's he trying to tell us is there a message there or is he just Doing what Dylan does. Well, clearly, when I paint my masterpiece and watching the river flow are meaningful to him over the last 10 years or whatever we want to. I mean, those are obviously songs he's gone back to. And there's something there, whatever, regardless of what it is, there's something there that he's trying to reanimate. They're also rightly on Russell-produced songs, and so there's a Tulsa connection. You wonder mm -hmm. if that had any role in them getting back on his radar. Maybe not at all, but it's an interesting coincidence, even if it's only oh, that's true. I think there's something to that, too, in the life of the song that um, I think that sometimes when I see the connection between the Wicked Messenger and False Prophet, there's something in Wicked Messenger that was saying to Robin, you know, last week that I don't think the 27-year-old, 26-year-old, 27-year-old Dylan could say that now this Dylan in this stage of his life can say when he revisits, when he revisits his songs, 
he's looking at them at different stages of his life and maybe he's calling something out of them. Just like when I listen to Dylan now, it's different than, you know, some songs resonate emotionally or in other ways differently than they did when I was, you know, in my teens or my twenties or my thirties. And so he, he's his revisions maybe signal that to us as well on him revisiting these songs. And for me, that's also something worth investigation. And then, um, now because I don't have courts gift <laughs> for enviable gift for just speaking off the cuff about your question of masculinity, um, the different relationships Dylan has had, the different periods in his life, um, relationships with other men, um, relationships with other musicians, or even with his father, just like these different things and how they've affected his his own creativity, I find interesting in terms of exploring his masculinity. And my final point. Grayley, when you started the Cincinnati series, you said this is something that is a rich investigation that could be done in every single city. And I remember vividly that that email exchange that you were just your energy and your excitement for how this is a new avenue for looking at Dylan. Grayley is going to be our Sufjan Stevens and doing Dylan mm -hmm. in every single place he's ever spent two nights at. Well, that's what AI is for, right? I mean, the answer to what will AI do with Dylan is that they'll create these these uh, realistic holographic projections, and we won't have to wonder about uh, the future, uh, you know, experience of Dylan because we'll be able to buy a ticket and go see the Rolling Thunder review, all we're all re uh, projected on stage uh, as if uh, before our very eyes. I'm not sure if that is the saddest thing I've heard today or the most exciting. Yeah, thing. really. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to go with sad. <laughs> I know, me too. Yeah, I'm sort of leaving. <laughs> me too. Me too. <laughs> I'm a Cassandra. I don't like these prophecies. Just because I know they'll come true doesn't mean that I like them. <laughs> well, this is sounds like a great place to wrap up. Um, Thank you very much, everyone. This has been a really fruitful and interesting conversation, as always. Um, thank we, you. No, thank you. This has been great. And I, I appreciate all your voices and all your brilliant commentary. Um, I always feel like I am but the moon with the reflected light and all that. Um, but we will reconvene again some other time for another thank million you. dollar back. Thanks, Jim. Thank you, well, everyone. Thanks, thanks a lot, Jim. Good to see you. Thank you, Jim. This is a great idea. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Dylan Tons Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to have the Dylan Tons sent directly to your inbox. And share the Dylan Tons on social media.